Hi there! This is the PowerPoint Tribe, where our vibe is faith and our food is the Word. Prepare to be strengthened and encouraged through the teachings of God's Word and the ministry of the Spirit. I'd just like us to begin with a prayer. Let's just um, continue to bless the name of the Lord. Let's thank Him for this wonderful opportunity. The Bible says the entrance of your word gives light and it brings understanding to the simple. Let's thank God because we know tonight we are going to have a light fellowship whereby there will be conference of God's light in our lives, meeting our lives, and that begins to produce all manner of godliness and all manner of godly virtues. Jesus, just appreciate Jesus, appreciate the Holy Spirit for this wonderful opportunity that will be fed fat at this table. God is good and his mercy endures forever. And one of the ways by which God shows his goodness to us is by consistently feeding us with his word. Jesus, we honor you. We thank you for your word that is about to come forth. We thank you because we know this word will edify, this word will strengthen, and this word will cause us to be lifted. Lord, we appreciate you. We thank you. We thank you. Just begin to thank God in advance for that which he said to do. You know, many a times God's word performs a surgical procedure in our lives whereby God begins to remove those things that are not consistent with his nature from our lives in order for him to begin to establish those things that are consistent with his person. And that's what God is going to do tonight. That's what God is set to do tonight. That God is going to cause a shift in our lives, a shift that is consistent with his realities. You know, the sub-theme for this meeting is the believer's roadmap to victory over the flesh. Once again, this is another night where God is set to guarantee us into his victory. Father, we give you praise. Lord, we worship you. Thank you because we know that we enter into the victory that Christ brings. Thank you because we begin to manifest the tenets of this victory every day of our lives. Lord, we give you all the glory. We give you all the praise and honor. Thank you for answered prayers. In Jesus' mighty name, we have prayed. Amen. And you can type your loudest. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Um, so I want to say a very big thank you to our pastor, our father, my mentor, Pastor Dami Ogunsunde, for this wonderful opportunity, and especially for the first four installments has indeed been a rich deluge of God's word. Thank you so much, Pastor, for this wonderful opportunity. And I want to appreciate all the pastors, all the leaders, and every one of you for making it a date with God tonight. Praise God. So the book of Romans, the book of Romans, such a powerful book, such a wonderful book. Um, by now, we know that the authorship of the book of Romans is not under any form of contention. It was written by our beloved brother Paul as inspired by the Lord. And um, uh, before we delve in into um, the meat of tonight's teaching, I would just like to, um, because it's a Bible study, you know, Pastor Dami said in the first installment, it's a, method, it's a methodical study of the Bible, verse by verse study of the Bible. So um, it, it is going to be more academic. So it is going to be more like a theological um, expose than a preaching of some sort. So I, I like you guys to be patient with me and <laughs> like we're always saying in the tribe, let us all endure sound doctrine. So I'll just uh, be giving a little bit of um, historical relevance around the book of Romans and um, I like some things from the last four um, installments and that will just set the framework for what I'm going to be discussing tonight, praise God. So at any point where um, I'm not audible, please kindly let me know in the chat room, praise God. All right, so, so the book of Romans, like I said earlier, was written by the Apostle Paul, uh, and it was written around AD 55 to AD 59. Um, by the time Paul was writing the book of Romans, um, Paul has already done like 20 years of ministry. So many, many um, theological writings as it that Paul has done 
done the first missionary journey and the second missionary journey. And, and the book of Romans is um, one of the longest ancient writing we, we ever had. And, and by default, it's, it's Paul's longest epistle. You understand? It's Paul's longest epistle. Though the book of Hebrews is still highly contentious around the authorship, but even at that, Romans is still longer than Hebrews. Praise God. And um, as opposed to many of his other letters to the churches, um, the church in Rome was not the church um, Brother Paul founded. Praise God. So as at the time when Paul was writing to the church in Rome, he had not even gone to Rome. So he had not visited this church. And that's why you begin to see uh, where he wrote in the first um, chapter of Romans that I long to visit you, that I may impact in you. Then I also fellowship in your own um, ministry. Praise God. Me paraphrasing now. So, so Paul never visited Rome, never founded the church in Rome, but he wrote to the church in Rome. And the believers in Rome, they were aware of the person and caliber of Brother Paul by now. You understand? His fame obviously have spread abroad. Remember um, those cities that said he almost turned them upside down himself and um, Silas and, and all of that. Uh, and so one of the questions we begin to ask is why did Paul write Romans? Because when you begin to read the New Testament, you begin to find out that a large chunk of the New Testament are letters. So one of the ways by which you understand the letter is not by reading them in parts, it's by reading them in whole. Because when you look at the Old Testament, there are no letters in the Old Testament. There are more or less books in the Old Testament. You get, but it is a letter. And you know, uh, one of the ways, or one of the things we know about letter is that letters always have an intent. Remember when they were teaching us in English language how to write a formal or informal letter, and after the salutation, you now go to the next paragraph, which is famously known as my main aim of writing you this letter is to let you know X, Y, Z. You understand? So it simply means that every letter has an aim. So there is an aim in every letter. All right? So, uh, so there are many theological debates as to the essence why Paul wrote this letter. Uh, but I'm just going to stick with one. And the one I'm going to stick with is the one enshrined by um, um, Dr. David Paulson. And he said one of the reasons why Paul wrote the letter to the church in Rome was because of some fundamental challenges that the church in Rome had. So Rome was the capital of the ancient Roman Empire. Praise God. Are we still together? So Rome was the capital of the ancient Roman Empire. And as such, Rome as a city became a melting point for many nations. Because what you begin to see in Acts of Apostles chapter 2, uh, when the apostles began to speak in tongues in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, is that you begin to hear many people coming from different places, Jews from other um, um, localities, Jews from other nations coming to Jerusalem. And one of the things the Bible captured in Acts of Apostles chapter 2 is that there were some Jews from Rome. All right? So you see, so Rome was a melting point of civilization. Praise God. So Rome is what you are going to consider like New York in today's world, whereby when you go there, you find different nationalities, different civilizations, different cultures, all mel melting in one big pot called Rome. Praise God. So you, you get so many diverse civilizations. And because of that diverse nature of that city, it also means that the church in Rome had different diverse leanings. And just to save time, two of the major leanings we have in the church is that the people that made up the church in Rome were the Jewish Christians. That's the Jews that gave their life to Christ. And the Gentile Christians, that's the non-Jews who gave their life to Christ. And because of these um, cultural leanings, because of this cultural belief, some fundamental challenge uh, began to fester in the church in Rome. 
some of the challenges that festered um, actually cuts across diet, actually cuts across mode of living, because you understand that the Jews are traditional legalistic people, and the Romans or the Gentiles are, are culturally um, um, people that are given to license. You get? And that's why um, the book or, or the letter to the church in Rome is like almost the only letter that, ex that explicitly um, trashed out the issue of um, homosexuality because of the nature, because ancient history added that 14 out of the 15 emperor in Rome, they were openly gays. So imagine if this was what was happening at the top. You understand, it's going to fester even down. And see, the church was not alienated from this problem. Praise God. And you see, uh, one of the things we begin to notice about the church is the church is like a boat. The boat must be on water for it to thrive. But problem begin to happen when that water begin to find its way into the boat. And so these were some of the issues that Paul was trying to address. And chief among those issues was the perceived enmity, the perceived um, discord between the Jewish Christian and the Gentile Christian. And that's why when you look at the letter to the church in Rome, it's almost like a dialogue, a debate. It's almost like Paul will throw a question at himself and he's going to answer the question with a theological, with a precise theological um, argument. All right? And that's what that that that's like the makeup of, of, of the book of Rome, of Romans, rather, praise God. And you know, in Pastor Dami's first four installments, he has already inundated us with the spirit of the opening narrative. Remember the opening scripture, the 13th Amendment. You understand? Pastor Dami has already given us the fundamental framework on what we need to know about. And Pastor Dami has also um, trashed out the issue of the authorship of the book of Rome. Because, you know, when Paul was going to introduce himself, you know, if you've not seen a people, if you've never visited the people, one of the first things you need to do is you need to familiarize yourself with them. And that's why Paul had a very robust introduction. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. You understand? And pastor has already done justice to all of that. And today I'll just be layering on that foundation to lead us into some more dimensions of truth as captured in the letter. Praise God. So I'd like to start from where pastor stopped uh, um, last week. And I'll just be reading from the book of Romans chapter 1 from verse 18 to 28. It's going to be a long read. And um, for this teaching, uh, I will be using the NLT, the New Living Translation, because of the ease of its English language so that we can now begin to build. Praise God. So Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 28. If you are with your Bible, now will be a good time for you to open it. And I'll be reading from here. The Bible says, But God showed his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he had made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God has made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshipping the glorious ever-living God, they worship idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful thing their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. 
That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, born with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. As a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things they should, that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness. Sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful. They invent new ways of sinning. They disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die. Yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them also. See, when you begin to read this submission by Apostle Paul, you begin to see the progression of sin, something I, I, I like to refer to as the progression of sin. So apparently, the manifestations of sin do not just begin because men just begin to uh, enjoy or men just begin to enjoy the, um, the, the manifestations of sin or, or the allure of sin. No, the manifestations of sin actually started something before the allure of sin comes into play. And that starts from the place where men began to disregard God in their mind. And pastor dealt with this last week. So you see, when men begin to disregard God in their mind, you know, when, when pastor, pastor Peace find out someone in the tribe, he taught us about nature, that how by observing nature alone, one can tell of the reality of God, of the reality of the designer, because nothing can just happen upon the world. You see, nothing can come out of nothing. There is an order in this world that points to the fact that there is somebody that is causing everything to work in order. And you see, what Paul began to tell us in the account of Rome, uh, is, of Romans rather, is the fact that when men begin to deny this truth, when men begin to deny this truth, they are directly giving themselves over to debauchery and to different levels of, um, of, of deviation from the path of truth. And some of those deviations begin to manifest themselves in the actions or manifestations of sin. So you see, sin did not just start as sin. Sin started by denial. So in other words, you know how Dr. Miles Monroe will say, when the purpose of a thing is not known, the only other purpose that that thing can do is abuse. So in other words, when man begins to lose his identity or reject his identity in Christ, the only other identity that exists outside the identity in Christ is the identity of debauchery and deviation from the path of righteousness. And you see, that deviation from the path of righteousness begins to manifest itself in the things we now regard to as the works of sin. And you see, the thing about depravity is that depravity is like the bottomless pit. It has no end. The more man keeps denying the efficacy of the Christ, the reality of God, there is no limit to the depth through which man can descend into. And you begin to see this thing reflecting in our world you see like like the famous guys that characterize themselves by an alphabet we don't even know the end of the alphabet yet because it started with l they added a g to it a b to it and now they've even added plus because that plus simply means infinite and that simply means that the more one keeps denying the reality of christ the one one keeps denying the truth of God. There is no limit to the depth of depravity that soul can descend into. 
And this was what Paul was warning the church in Rome from. And you see, this aspect of um, this warning is more targeted to the Gentile faction of the church in Rome because they are the ones that are overly given to license. You know, most of these people were coming from, from a religion of um, 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 polytheism, whereby there are multiple gods. Remember when Paul got to Ephesus? Remember, he saw there was a temple to an unknown god. There were temple prostitutes. You know, when Paul was ministering there, he had to start debating around these circles. Remember the case of Diana and, and our cohort, the silversmith and all of that in the act of apostles. So you see, when these people come to Christ, or perhaps the reason why these people get into this state in the first place was simply because they denied God. Even though they do not know God the way the Bible presents it, by observing nature alone, by observing nature alone, they know that there is an order to what brought about creation. But instead of seeking that, instead of um, staying true to that, remember our proverb tells us that the spirit of a man is like a candle, such as in one voice of Christ. But instead of aligning to that candle and begin to look for the path that leads to God, like the utopian eunuch did before he encountered Brother Philip, you understand? The utopian eunuch obviously knew that there was a need in his soul. He knew that there was a longing in his soul. Even though he did not know the correct, he just picked Isaiah and just started ruminating over it, reading it out loud, trying to satisfy the deep craving within his soul. Praise God. And it was that deep craving within his soul that caused a response in heaven, that caused God to send a certain brother, Philip, to go meet him so that he can introduce him into the path of righteousness. And take note, Philip never mentioned anything about baptism. It is that same spirit in the heart of the Ukrainian you know, that beckoned on baptism. But you see, if the Utopian Enoch, you know, for example, had begin to deny that longing for God within his members, what invariably happens is that his soul starts descending into different levels of deprivation and depravity, and there is no limit to it. And how we begin to see those depravity is the different manifestations of sin as enshrined in Romans chapter 1 from verse 18 to 32. Disobedience to parents. Different levels of depravity. Praise God. But that's not where I'm going to tonight. So, you know, when Paul began to discuss this, uh, maybe as a Jewish member of the church, you, you might invariably want to now say, eh -eh. maybe when you are reading the intro of the letter, you say, you see what I've been telling all these Gentile fellows? That this thing is not good, and, and you just want to start descending into, you want to start taking on the posture of a judge and start judging people. But look at the way verse 2 now opens. Verse 2 now opens in such a different way. You know, it's a letter, so there was no chapters and verses. It was just a consistent stream of thought, a long stream of thought. Paul just gave us a shocker. He said in verse 2, uh, Romans chapter 2 from verse 1, uh, which is now the meat of what I have to discuss tonight. He said, you may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself too. For you who judge others, you do this very thing. Now, this is now targeted at the Jewish members of the church in Rome. Because one of the things is, is this contention that, ah, because this one is, is not doing well, this one is not doing well, then sometimes you now want to assume the role of a judge and begin to wield the gavel 
and begin to pass a sentence of death over them. So one would not have expected this follow-up from Paul. In as much as he called out wickedness, he defined wickedness, he explained the pathway to becoming wicked. He, however, admonished us not to wield the gavel in passing out the guilty sentence on those we perceive as deserving of judgment. Instead, what we begin to notice here is that Paul is now asking us to be wary that we do not become that which we are attempting to judge. And Paul also affirms here that the reason why some individual wield the biggest gavel and have the loudest voice in the arena of judgment is because their increase in decibels is a way they try to drown out the voice of their conscience that accuses them of abhorring the same sin that they condemn. Remember, when Paul was writing to the church in Corinthians, in Corinth, he told them in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, he said, let he that thinks he stand, let him take heed lest he fall. So in as much as Paul was calling out wickedness here, was calling out sin for what it is here, was calling out debauchery for what it is here, Paul was not asking us to be the ones that will now be in charge of administering judgment to people. On the contrary, the reason why Paul was calling out all those things is so that we can now use those things as a framework for examining ourselves, to check ourselves. If we have not started devaluing God in our heart, and we have not started systematically descending into these levels of debauchery that he has explained in Romans chapter 1. Because many a times, that thing that we think, you know, Paul said in, Rome, in Corinthians, that let he that thinketh is stand. It is not that he is standing. The standing that he thinks is, is a thought. It is not a reality. Which simply means that if you are thinking you are standing, it's evident that you are not standing in the first place. Because if you were standing, you don't need to think about it. You know. Standing is supposed to evoke a knowledge in you. You know. Remember the Bible says, Nevertheless, the foundation of the Lord standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. So, if you are standing, it is a knowledge. You will know. But if you are not standing, you will be thinking. And because you are having a false thought of standing, you will not begin to judge men from the perspective of that thought, even though you too, you are a victim of the fall. You are criticizing others for, rather. And so many times, the standing that men think they are standing and their condemnation to people that are falling is just to drown out the voice of their conscience that is telling them that even you, you are a victim of this sin that you are condemning others of. Mm. Praise God forevermore. So Paul now told us in Romans chapter 2 from verse 1, he now told us that, he said, you may think you can condemn such people he said, but you are just as bad. And you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, he said, you are condemning yourself. He said, for you who judge others, do this very same thing. This was not the full law. The legalistic people were waiting to see. Praise God. Praise God. So Paul was not telling us that we must not be like this. We must take heed. Praise God. We must take it less before. So if Paul is not asking us, we must take it. So what is he not asking us to do? Now let's read. Let's read. It's Bible study. Let's read verse 2. I'm in Romans chapter 2 now from verse 2. And Paul began to say, and we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. He says, since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? 
Verse 4 now says, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Praise God. And this is where we are going to tabernacle a bit for tonight. That even God that is supposed to pass the judgment to both the Gentile that is given over to license, licentiousness, and the Jew who had fallen but is being legalistic around the stand. Paul is saying, two of you join together. He said, don't you see how wonderfully kind, number one, wonderfully kind. Number two, tolerant. Number three, patient God is with you. And why is God wielding this tripod stand? The tripod stand of kindness, tolerance, and patience. He's saying, don't, does this not mean anything to you? He said, can you not see that all of this kindness from God is intended to turn you from your sin? So, dearly beloved, I am pleased to announce to you here that what leads men away from sin into righteousness is not condemnation. On the contrary, it is the kindness of God. It is the kindness of God that leads men to repentance. It is, I repeat, it is the kindness of God that leads men. And that's why, that's why the gospel is too good to be true. That's why the gospel is too good to be true. The gospel is not just good news. It is too good to be true. Because imagine a man that is given over to depravity. Imagine a man that is given over to sin of the worst kind. And you are telling that man that it is not judgment. It is not the fear of judgment that will lead you to repentance. On the contrary, it is the overflow of the kindness of God that will begin to spoil you a heart that will lead to repentance. And it's at this point, I would just like us to jump a bit, a bit. We are not yet there yet, but we'll just jump a bit to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And we'll just read from 6 to 8. And I'll be reading from the Amplified Bible. The Bible says, why we were still helpless, in brackets, powerless to provide for our salvation. It says, at the right time, Christ died as a substitute for the ungodly. Hmm. Verse 7 is where I want to tabernacle. And 8. He said, now it is an extraordinary thing for one to willingly give his life, even for an upright man. He said, though perhaps for a good man, one who is noble and selfless and worthy, some might even dare to die. He now says, see verse 8. He said, but God clearly shows and proves his own love to us by the fact that while we were still seen as Christ died for us, this statement here, that while we were seen as Christ, it is the, is the extreme level of kindness ever known to man. That God looked at us, and pastor said this in the first day. Pastor said this explicitly in the 13th Amendment. God looked at man in his deepest state of sin, for lack of a better superlative, in his wickedest state of sin. And God looked at man, and even at that state, God said, man is deserving of my kindness. And how I am going to manifest this kindness to man is by sending my own son to die for them. So that by the time man sees the effulgence of God's kindness, that kindness will spoil in man a heart of repentance. And the first recipient of this was that thief by the cross. The guy looked at Jesus and he said, I know why I am here. I know why I am here. But this man has done nothing worthy of being here. And Jesus said, today, it was almost as if Jesus, God was prolonging the life of Jesus so that he can show one more person his kindness. And you know, God expects this level of kindness in us 
Because it is this kindness that will lead men into repentance and will now begin to help them to chart a course of victory over flesh. Perhaps the reason why so many people are still neck deep in debauchery is simply because they have been starved of a man that will show them the fullness of the kindness that God has to offer. If you and I have been recipient of God's kindness, what Paul is telling us in Romans chapter 2 from verse 2 is that we ought to be able to replicate that level of kindness to others. Because if the kindness got us repented in the first place, it is that same kindness that will lead others unto repentance from where they cannot begin their work in God and they cannot begin to chart a course of victory over the life of the flesh. So you see a lot of people, we just have this antagonistic attitude against those who we perceive as sinners. Yes, nobody is asking you to endorse sin. No, Jesus never endorsed sin. Nobody is asking you to endorse sin. But every, God is asking you to look beyond the manifestations of that sin and look at the man. It was part of the people Jesus captured in John 3, 16 as the word who he came to die for, that they might not perish but have everlasting life. But many a times, we find ourselves wanting to take on the position of the God, or of the judge rather. We put on our wig and we begin to wield the biggest gavel, ever willing to pass judgment of them. And God is saying, no, stay the judgment. Show kindness. Because it is the kindness of God that leads men to repentance. I'd like you to tell your neighbor, it is the kindness of God that leads men to repentance. Tell your e-neighbor, tag your e-neighbor, say it is the kindness of God that leads men to repentance. Praise God. All right. So you see, what we see in Romans chapter 5 from verse 6 to 8 clearly proves God's love to us as the ultimate show of kindness ever known to man. Now, having been a recipient of this divine act of kindness, the onus now lies on you and I to leverage the divine grace that has been given to us to replicate this to many out there, especially those who aren't of the faith. If we must state like Paul, as captured in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that I am not ashamed of the gospel of God, then kindness must be a tool we must employ in the propagation of the gospel. Because even Jesus Christ stated it. Praise God. Just pray in the spirit for a while. Praise God. Jesus stated in Matthew chapter 5 from verse 46 to verse 48. He says, if you only love those who love you, he said, what reward is there? He said, even corrupt tax collectors, they do that much. He said, if you are only kind to your friends, how different are you from anyone else? Jesus said, even pagans do that. He said, but you are to be perfect, even as your heavenly father is perfect. You see, and one of the fundamental problems of the church in Rome was their propensity to judge others. And by doing this, they lost their ability to be retrospective and consider their own love work. Living in this manner caused one to descend into a state of pride. And you know, when one descends into a state of pride, you begin to activate the resisting arm of the Lord. And before long, that individual begins to recreate the cycle described in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 28. Praise God. You see? Because when we begin to judge, 
when we are not kind to one another, ultimately what we are doing is that we begin to descend into a state of pride. I remember what Pastor taught us about pride when he was teaching us about the lead. That when you begin, when you are not inundated with pride, you begin, you become too heavy for God to carry. And you know one thing, pride also has a progression. When one descends into the state of pride, passing judgment up and down on other people, before long, you begin to deny God. And before you know, you start recreating the cycle Paul described in Romans chapter 1 from verse 18. You will start it because you now will not get to that stage where you will not deny God. You will not begin to descend into different levels of depravity and sin. You see, that's why it is, see, when God is asking us to show kindness, the kindness is not just for the unbelievers. It's not just for us to be an effective ambassador. So kindness is also our own defense protocol to keep us from descending into a state of pride and into debauchery. So kindness is a defensive mechanism to keep us in God. Praise God. Praise God. All right. Ah, I need to move on. I need to move on. All right. Let's proceed. So, now one thing we have learned so far, at least if we've, I believe we have learned so many things so far, but one thing we have learned so far is the antidote to pride, the antidote to descending into a state of pride and begin to recreate the circle in Romans chapter 1 from verse 18 is to live in the spirit. And one of the characteristics of a spirit-led life is that we begin to exhibit the fruit of the spirit. And by the time you begin to consider the fruit of the spirit in Galatians chapter 5, I think from verse 20 upward, you are 23 up, you now begin to see that kindness is one of the fruits of the spirit. So tonight, huh, I think now will be a good time for me to um, say the title of the teaching in the manner of our senior pastor. It's an expose on kindness. Simple. That's the, that's the teaching. Romans, uh, the book of Romans 5.0, an expose on kindness. And what is kindness? What is kindness? Kindness simply means consistently producing goodness or consistently producing spirit-filled goodness which meets needs and avoids human harshness of cruelty. I'll take that again. Kindness in this, in this context simply means to consistently produce spirit-filled goodness which meets needs and avoids human harshness and cruelty. Do we get that? Did we get that? I'll take that again. I'll take that again for the last time. Kindness in this context simply means to consistently produce spirit-inspired goodness which meets needs and it avoids human cruelty or harshness. And by now, as, as members of the PowerPoint tribe, we all know what goodness means. <laughs> we all know what it means to be good. All right? So I'm not going to go through all of that. Praise God. So you can just go on SoundCloud and uh, I can't remember the message now. Check the message where Pastor uh, extensively discuss what it means to be good. Praise God. So you, the question we now begin to ask is how do we become kind? There's a spiritual methodology to this. How do we become kind? How do we become kind? And um, I will just be mentioning three, three ways to become kind as um, we begin to head towards uh, rounding up this part.
powerful session. Praise God. Number one. Number one way to becoming kind is see people the way God sees them. See people the way God sees them. See people the way God sees them. John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. How does God see the world? God sees the world from a platform of love. God ate sin. The Bible says his eyes are too holy to behold iniquity. So God has a mechanism for, for, of separating the manifestations of sin from the man that is abhorring that nature. God loves the man. Yes, God hates the sin, but he loves the man. And the love for, for that man eh, makes God to go all out to save him because he knows that that man is in the captivity of sin. That if that man is set free from that captivity, the man will live better. So in other words, God sees men from a standpoint whereby they are too valuable to just be given up on. So if God sees men from that pedestal, why will you and I just give up on people? Romans chapter 5 verse 7 also shows us how God sees them. He said, scarcely for a good man, some may die. He said, but he commended his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. That is how God sees us. Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 23. God was telling us, I take no pleasure in the death of a sinner. Zero pleasure. Zero pleasure. Sometimes we read the Old Testament, we see the case of Detham and Abiram, we see this case of the sons of Kohath, and we think God is just happy that the ground opened up and swallowed these people. But Ezekiel told us that God doesn't take any pleasure in all of that. He now emphasized it again in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. Remember, by the month of two or three, which have been established. Ezekiel alone gave us two witnesses. He says, I take no pleasure, Ezekiel 33, verse 11, in the death of the wicked. Zero pleasure. So when we begin to see beyond the manifestations of sins all over men and begin to see them in the light of the divine redemption that awaits them in God, our propensity for judgment begins to give way for intercession. Because as opposed to judging, we become consumed with how they can be restored into the glorious light that Christ's redemption offers. So when we begin to see men from the perspective God sees them, we begin to judge less and we begin to intercede more. Did Jesus not rightly tell us that the field is white for harvest? He said, but the laborers are few. What is making the laborers few is because some people that are supposed to be laborers, they abandoned the act of laboring and they were given over to judgment. But when we begin to see men from the perspective God is seeing them, we judge less and we intercede more. Because we begin to see them from the light of Christ glorious sacrifice. We begin to see them from the light of what redemption has for them. By the time you see that guy that is giving over to work um, agendas, work mindset, work narrative, you don't just judge him and say, ah, oh, this one, I've given up. No, you don't use that kind of words. You begin to see the wickedness of sin. And because you see the wickedness of sin, it begins to raise in you, evoking you a propensity for intercession. You now begin to take on that posture of a priest that stands between the porch and the altar and begin to cry out for that soul. 
that no, this one must encounter redemption. This one must encounter the glorious sacrifice of Christ. Because you know that the wages of sin is dead. But in the same vein, you also know that the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. So you begin to look for a strategy to take them away from the wages of sin and begin to launch them into the place where they can enjoy the gift of God. No one is too far gone that God cannot rescue. No one. It takes a mindset of kindness for us to begin to see it. It takes a mindset of, a mindset of kindness. Look at what Jesus said, or God said in Ezekiel chapter 33. He said, I do not delight in the death of a wicked, but he be turned away from his ways, that I will give him life. No one is too far gone. We just need to be a little bit kind. Number two, we need to show empathy. Number two ways to become kind, we need to show empathy. Yes, it is okay to detest the actions and manifestations of sin, but love the individual and demonstrate that love by kind words and deed. Remember in Luke chapter 19, verse 1 to 10, Jesus saw Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. You know, all of us, we just use Zacchaeus to crack joke. Oh, that short man that went to climb the tree. But you see, I began to have a different perspective of Zacchaeus after I saw this wonderful, and I believe it's a spirit-inspired series that I can recommend, Chosen. You know, see the way Matthew, if you have watched the movie Chosen, see the way Matthew was treated, even by his fellow, his fellow disciples. In that movie, for a long time, Peter refused to talk to Matthew, simply because of his vocation. His father and his own mother ostracized him because he's a tax collector. You see, that movie began to open my eyes to see how tax collectors that were Jews were treated in ancient Israel. They were treated with scorn. The guy Matthew had no friend. He had no companion. In fact, people almost spit on him on the street. And perhaps that was the way Zacchaeus was treated. Because what stopped the top people from allowing Zacchaeus to stand in front? There was no way Zacchaeus was going to obstruct their own view. You understand? There was no way Zacchaeus was going to obstruct their view. But obviously, because of his vocation, he was shoved, he was pushed, he was treated with scorn, he was judged. And the, and the man had to climb a tree. And guess what? Jesus did not notice other judges. Jesus did not notice any judge. The one that had the capacity to judge showed kindness. The one that had the capacity to pass judgment and his judgment would be just, he chose to show kindness. Jesus bypassed everybody. Luke chapter 19, 1 to 10. And he reached out for Zacchaeus. And he said, Zacchaeus, tonight I will feast in your home. And guess what? The feast was not even far gone. Zacchaeus made a vow to give times four of everything to everyone he has defrauded. And that day, everyone gained a son. Everyone gained a son. And Anne lost his soul. Because Jesus chose to be kind. He chose to be empathetic. Everyone gained a son from the act of kind. Remember, it is the kindness that leads men to repentance. Zacchaeus has been judged for as long as his career lasted. And for one day, he never thought of giving his life to Christ. Because one of the things that judgment begins to do is that judgment begins to cause those people that are given over to sin become stuck in their ways. Because the only way they gain relevance is by being judged, is by being thrown out. So in other words, they now begin to respond in rebellion 
So rebellion is a way by which they now start to build a, a defensive mechanism against the onslaught they are receiving from people. And that now makes them stuck in their ways. Perhaps the reason why those people in sin are still in sin is because people have given up on them. And they say, you are not, let us go sin the sin. If only we will show kindness. Praise God. If only we will show kindness. You know, I don't know if it's Brother Egan or A.W. Toza, but I read in one of their books, or I can't remember, it means an illustration of a man that this preacher preached to a certain drunkard every day, all his life and everything. He preached to this man, preached to this man. This man never gave his life, but he kept showing him kindness. He kept inundating him with God's word. He kept preaching the gospel to him. He kept preaching the gospel. And do you know what? The man never gave his life to Christ, and the preacher died. And on the day when they were burying the preacher, this man came to the um, burial ceremony. And when they began to lower the corpse into the grave, the man began to cry. And he said, why is he crying? People were asking, he said, this man spent his entire life preaching to me, and he never gave up. And that day, the man gave his life to Christ. Heaven gained the son by kindness. Praise God. Heaven gained the son by kindness. And lastly, lastly, as I begin to round up, none of the ways... These are not exhaustive. There are many ways to be kind, but I just shared three. The first one, see people the way God sees them. The second one, show empathy. And the third one, be compassionate like Jesus. You see this in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. The Bible says, And Jesus saw the crowd, and they were like sheep without shepherd. Do you know how many of us in these days have turned that statement, sheep without shepherd, to a statement of scorn? But Jesus never intended it to be a statement of scorn. When Jesus used the phrase, they are like sheep without shepherd, it was from a place of compassion. And guess what Jesus Christ began to do after the utterance of that statement? Jesus Christ began to give of himself to them by preaching and by teaching. Jesus Christ was just coming from a journey. He saw people. Perhaps he was tired from that boat trip. But compassion made him to begin to give himself to them. Because Jesus Christ looked at, if I don't give of myself to them, these ones will be lost. Are you giving of yourself to people or you are allowing them to roam in the wilderness of being lost and yet judge them for being lost? It is funny how we don't show people the way and yet we blame them for being lost. What else will they do if you don't show them the way? If you don't show them the way, you have no right to judge them for being lost. We have no right to judge them from being lost because you have the way. You possess the truth. You are bought the life. You refuse to give it to people. And yet, you blame them for being lost. You blame them for lying. And you blame them for having death instead of life. Praise God forevermore. Always remember, the pathway to enlisting men in God's kingdom where they can now live a life of victory over flesh, that pathway must be paved with kindness. Remember Romans chapter 2 verse 4. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from sin? The thing about this Romans chapter 4 is, Every statement of Paul there ended with a question mark. 
it's ended with a question mark, which simply means that those rhetorical questions, you are supposed to answer them in the corridors of your heart. Brother, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? And by extension, everyone. Does this patience, does this kindness and tolerance, does it not mean anything to you? Can you not open your eyes and see that what is intended to turn people away from sin is kindness? If you answer this question correctly, you are supposed to know what to do. You are supposed to know what to do. And I trust that God will begin to cause his words to grow in our heart and will begin to put on the cloak of kindness and respond to a sinful and lost world with heart of kindness that will cause heaven to start gaining sons and daughters. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Thank you for having me. God bless you and good night. Wow, what a word. For more messages, connect with our tribesmen across all social media platforms at Parpoint Tribe.